0: Well, hey there, welcome back to the second week of our Hope in the Dark message series. And uh, week one was actually two weeks ago because of student takeover, which was great. But uh, in week one, we talked about why does God let bad things happen? And uh, if you remember, we talked about putting the tape measure of our time into the context of God's promises for eternal life. And, uh, man, that's so good. It can take even the brightest and darkest days of this life by comparison and uh, make them great. Now, honestly, it was one of my favorite messages of all time. Adam Triplett's parents, my old youth pastor who died in that plane crash, reached out to us just to celebrate God's uh, goodness and reconnect. And, uh, man, I love that. If you missed... Um, that message. Please go back and watch it. It is foundational to this series, but also I just, I really liked getting to communicate that. I I hope um, that it spoke to your lives. I'd encourage you to check that out. But today, I want to talk about depression and anxiety. And it is a big deal um, in our society today. Uh, Up to 24.8% of the American population struggles with anxiety or depression, which is dramatically higher than previous decades and generations. Um, But also, uh, that number rises to two-thirds of our young adults and teens, um, and some studies up to above 70% um, struggle with depression and or anxiety, which is bad, that's a lot, and we live at this great time in human history, you're less likely to be the victim of a violent crime than any other point in American history, you're less likely to die a tragic death for any reason other than suicide than at any other point in American history. Americans are better off by every material measure, and yet we're simply not happy, in fact. By some measures, we're miserable when compared to our peer groups in previous generations. Why? Today, I want to talk about this. And uh, the big question is, why do I feel darkness when things are good? This is more than a topic or an issue to me. Uh, This is a personal struggle of mine and uh, just like Jesus, I want to give you a message that's going to be applicable to your life, right? Jesus didn't do just expository verse-by-verse messages. There's no, like, biblical example of that, but I am a nerd, so I'm going to do some of that. But but I also want to make sure I do what Jesus did, which is give you something that's applicable to your life. And even if you're not a follower of God, I would say that today's message should have something for you because I want you to leave with something And I've shared with the church before about my struggles with anxiety. I vividly remember having a horrible panic attack standing right here before this building was done. The the walls were not there yet. It was just kind of a steel structure. And I lost my mind right here, right? Full-on panic attack. And I've also shared uh, years ago about my personal issues with depression. And I take solace in the fact that even though this is a part of my sinful nature... Um, God consistently uses heroes in the Bible who struggle with this as well. Last week, Zachary talked about a great prophet from the Old Testament named Elijah, who um, was a wonderful man. Zachary gave a great message, and I'm thank you thankful uh, for his continued vulnerability. But this week, I want to look at another part of Elijah's story. And uh, Elijah, his life is framed by this dramatic standoff that he has with King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. His whole life, he's sort of dueling with them. And Ahab in the Bible is sort of portrayed as adult, um, but Jezebel is perhaps the most evil supervillain female of all time. She's like a caricature of evil. And uh, the big issue that she has is she supports and worships this detestable God named Baal in the Old Testament. Most of the gods of the Old Testament are detestable and cruel. In fact, most gods of that era. Um, But Baal, in particular, um, his followers would practice human sacrifice, child sacrifice, mutilation, and the abuse of children. And uh, I would say, even today, most non Christian religions are pretty cruel and take a cavalier attitude towards human life, statistically, from the jihads of Islam to the consistent genocides of the religious cult of atheism throughout the 20th century. I'm thankful to be a part of a movement that has brought more good to the human endeavor than all other movements in human history. And uh, I love Christianity for that reason, but ultimately, I love it because it's true. And uh, the same true living God of the Bible that we worship today is the God of Elijah. And uh, Elijah is sent by this same God to take a stand against the evil of Jezebel and Ahab. And uh, the standoff ultimately comes to a climax in First, 1 First Kings uh, chapter 18. And there's this super amazing story, and I'm not going to tell you about it. You should read about it at home. It would be really helpful for you. I hope that you guys open up your Bibles for more than on Sunday morning. Great story to read. First Kings chapter 18. Uh, God takes a stand against the cult of Baal. And uh, it's kind of an awesome, wacky, inflatable, flailing arms man moment where you're like, oh, God is real. Holy smokes, I can't believe it. And the whole kingdom of Israel turns back to God, which is amazing and moving, moving. And uh, it's kind of a similar moment. Some of us had like places where we're like, God is real. I remember in physics class learning about the expansion of the universe. And I was like, oh, I can't follow my old religion anymore. I'm going to convert to Christianity because God is real, right? And everybody sees it. That's what happens with Elijah. Everybody sees him do this big miracle, and they're like, okay, I'm going to follow God. So Elijah then destroys 800 prophets of Baal. And they were war criminals. They were sex criminals and purveyors of the worst kinds of evil. And it's like at the end of a movie where good triumphs over evil. You know what I mean? Like the music is playing, and finally they raise the flag at Iwo Jima. Like it's defeated, and like good is restored, and everything is good. And Elijah should feel good because it's a pinnacle of triumph in his life. But then something kind of unexpected happens. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1, this is expected. It said, When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, including the way that he killed all the prophets about. So Jezebel posts on her Snapchat, May the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you, just as you have killed them. Right? Now, Jezebel is an evil, scary woman. You know, some of us have intimidating people in our life. I know I definitely do. But Let's keep in mind, Elijah, like five minutes ago, was used by God to destroy 800 evil, child-abusing war criminals of Baal. Like, he's pretty good. Like, he's good. He, he got 800 people. I don't think that the that, that Queen Jezebel can do much. I mean, they were her most devoted servant. She's now been declawed. She was a scary woman, but the battle is over, and God won through Elijah. You know what I mean? Like, put it in perspective. The threat's scary, but it's over. And yet, Elijah's reaction is sort of baffling to me. Why would he react this way? In verse 3, it says... Elijah was afraid, and he fled for his life. He went to Beersheba. Some of you guys are like, I'd like to go there. A town in Judah, and he left his servant there. And then, and this is what we do. We always isolate ourselves, don't we? I mean, in moments of depression, we do. We push away people that we love. We push away people that we know. He left his servant there, and he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. And he sat down under a solitary broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. What a juxtaposition, isn't that? He has the the pinnacle of triumph in his life. His life goal has been achieved. Baal is defeated. Jezebel is defeated. The kingdom is saved. And in that moment of victory, he prays that he might die. I have had enough. Have you ever had enough? I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. He falls into this deep depression. The greatest prophet of the age... After an unparalleled, unrivaled victory that would be remembered through the millennia, he sits beneath a solitary broom tree, praying for death. If you look at the sum total of Elijah's life, things are really good, like better than ever. Jezebel threatening his life is not a new thing. All his life he has fought hard, but at the moment, at the precipice of his greatest victory, he lets the hollow, empty threats of a beaten woman pierce his heart. At different times in my life, this has been my favorite story in the Bible. You know why? Because I relate to it. Usually right about this time of year, I feel a deep carnal fear and stress, an unyielding horror that just makes me not want to face the day. And even though things are good, I understand the first week of the series question, right? Why does God let bad things happen? makes sense to me, right? But this week I relate to you on a personal level. I understand it deeply and intimately. I am married to a beautiful woman. I have four wonderful kids. I lead the greatest church that I could have ever imagined. I'm at the pinnacle of a teenage dream that I once had, surrounded by the most wonderful people that I could ever ask for. But like Elijah, many times in my life, I feel like falling asleep under a broom tree, wishing that I was not alive. I just wonder if there's people here today who can relate to that. What do you do when things are good, but you feel terrible? All the research provides a pretty broad description of depression and anxiety. I think it is mostly spiritual, though I do want to emphasize, I believe that there is a biochemical component to anxiety and depression. And I, look if you're seeing a doctor, if you're on meds, that's good. I'm not saying don't do that. Today, I just want to address the spiritual aspect of it turns out that following Jesus' teachings dramatically lowers our chances of depression, anxiety, and all kinds of psychological morbidities. But despite the fact that I follow Jesus' teachings as hard as I can, I still struggle. So today I want to talk about three places over the years where I've seen myself make compromises that have led to greater depression. And I hope that my experience will help you. The last point is the most important, by the way. My third point it will blow your mind. Good point. But anyway, the first Compromise that I think we make is with comparison. Comparison is tough. There is a reason why the youngest generation of Americans today is so much more psychologically unhealthy than preceding generations. I think it's because of comparison. We used to raise kids in a progressive series of bigger and bigger arenas in life. We didn't put our kids in the biggest arenas of life until they were ready. I didn't put my kids on a two-wheeler until they rode a bike with training wheels. You know why? Because I didn't want them to fail at the big thing before they could handle the little thing. We start with a driver's permit, a smaller arena, right? And then we give them a restricted driver's license where they can drive without friends, not past certain times. And then finally, the largest arena, we give them an unrestricted driver's license. Today, they don't really care about driving, though, because, you know, TikTok and Fortnite and whatever. But anyway, when I was a kid, um, I, I did not know about the great runners, sailors, and water skiers of the world. The greatest water skier I knew was my dad, right? Today, because of cell phones, I mean, we're immediately comparing against the best. I never had to do that as a kid. Their comparison game is now level 1 million. You know what I mean? Like immediately you're introduced to the biggest arenas. and That's hard. We compare everything, and it robs us of fun in life. We compare our night out to everyone else's, TikToking their fun night together. And it's like, man, I had a fun night, but it doesn't look like it's as fun as theirs. We compare our time with family to their time with family. It's like, oh, my goodness, they're having so much more fun than me. I mean, I thought I had a good time, but now I feel like I'm in a loveless marriage. We compare our home decor to theirs. This is crazy, by the way. Do you remember when all our homes were just frumpy? You know, you joked about the 60 shag carpet upstairs, but you never did anything about it because who cares? Like home decor, it used to be if you had the Christmas village and the precious moments dolls, you were good. That's all you needed. You know what I mean? Like the rest of the house could look like whatever because nobody cares, right? But now Chip and Joanna Gaines, God bless them and their marriage and they're great, right? But whatever, they're making us put flooring on our walls and walls on our floor. Why? You Wait, you want me to just put this up there, honey? Because Joanna said to? Don't you think that's a little nuts? Like, can't we just leave it on the floor? I think it's good there, right? But the level of sophistication, the level of comparison is crazy. Thank you for ruining my life. I used to not know about mega mansions and mega yachts. I didn't. But now I've been watching this YouTube channel called Architectural Digest, right? 20 years ago, I didn't know about underwater speakers. You know, I mean, because people have to party while they're swimming, I guess. Like, what in the world? You really got to listen to music while you're under the water? I didn't know about infinity pools with, you know, large views of the L.A. skyline and the ocean. I didn't know those were a thing. I didn't know about indoor-outdoor living and pocket glass doors that slide into nothing. And I didn't know about onyx toilets. Onyx toilets. I didn't know about servants' quarters. I didn't know about chef's kitchens. But today, I've had the full tour of 20 to 30 mega mansions worth millions and millions of dollars because... My comparison game. You know what I mean? I mean, my house used to be nice to me. I thought it was a nice house, but now it's just a a shack. It's just plebeian, pedestrian, horrible. I mean, how could I? Because statistically, satisfaction from wealth is relative. It only comes from comparison. You understand this? It's only because you are wealthier than somebody else. So the richest person who is unaware and unexposed in a Guatemalan slum is going to feel far better from their wealth than the poorest millionaire in a Bel Air neighborhood. It's crazy. And yet this is real. Today our awareness has been expanded so much 20 years ago. A lot of people just felt blessed. But Gen Z is so aware that there's so many people who are cooler, prettier, better off, better dancing. What's that dance they do? The ramble, the ratchet. What's that thing called, Zachary? The renegade. Like so many people who can renegade better. What is this, right? Despite being richer, prettier, better off, better renegaders than any generation before, they feel so much worse because of phones, because of comparison. There are no small arenas to learn it. They're sitting in the largest arena of the whole world feeling inadequate. You know what's interesting? I have some friends who took their daughter's phone away. She was really upset, and at the end of the week, she was like, you know what? I actually feel better. I feel less stressed. Give me my phone back. You know what I mean? Nothing like comparison can turn a big win like Elijah's into something that feels like a defeat. It's because of comparison. Let me show you a new feature I learned. I got this iPhone 11 because I switched carriers, which was actually a terrible experience. But um, if you press and hold these two buttons right here, You get this slider right here, and then if you just check this out, swipe right. Oh, Look at that! We just turned this bad boy off! It's crazy! Some of you are like, ah, 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 your your phone's powered off. What are you going to do? I'm like, preaching a message, guys. It's okay. I'm not going to be like, hey, I'm preaching a message. Can I call you back? No, 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 no. It's good. Listen, for my family, shutting this thing down has been a lifesaver because the truth is this isn't just Gen Z. This is all of us at every age. Even old ladies, you know, you used to be proud of your quilts. You go to the Jasper County Fair, you get a ribbon, you're the best in the county, right? But now you're comparing with some lady in Dallas who's making like a 3D peacock that pops out of the quilt when you, whatever, and it's like, well, I'm just going to go back to Fox News, okay? Like, this is, we're done here. I'm not going to quilt anymore because of comparison. Shutting down the phone's been amazing to me because it brings me, this is a big deal, shutting down my phone brings me from comparison to community. I read an article years ago that talked about social media It said, listen, our phones, Not necessarily bad if we use them for what they were intended to be used for, which is community. Right? I mean, if you go on Facebook for 15 minutes and you like and you interact and you actually type and comment, whatever, you're going to end up neutral or maybe a little better off. But if you just spend 15 minutes scrolling and trolling, right? That's what I like to call it. If you spend 15 minutes just scrolling on TikTok, you will end up more depressed. because You're just comparing. You know why? Because it's bringing you from, or you know why it's better to interact? Because it brings you from comparison and competition into community. I challenge you right now, take an inventory of your inner dialogue inside your mind. I know it's a scary place to be, scary place for me at least. Go inside your mind and really take an inventory. How much of it do you spend comparing yourself to others versus actually communing with others? This is an important distinction. If you spend most of your time comparing, no matter how good your life is, I bet you're not very happy. Comparing and competing is an isolating force. It naturally leads us to push others away while we brood and scheme and self-pity about how hard my life is and about how we think we can rise to the top. My wife has been frustrated with me because she thinks I'm a real life branch and I'm destroying the true colors that she has. You know what I mean? I'm sitting here brooding all the time about things I can't control. It's one of my favorite pastimes. I love worrying about things I can't control. But listen, community brings satisfaction, connection, and meaning. This is why Jesus teaches us to love one another. In John 13, 35, this verse we've been talking about together, and you know, it is the most important verse in the Bible. Jesus says, a new command I give to you, it replaces all the other commandments, right? Love one another in the same way that I've loved you, so you must love one another. What is he doing? He's calling us away from human nature. He's calling us away from comparison into community. Why? It's against our nature. It's not what we'd normally do, but it is the path to our satisfaction, contentment, and freedom from this depression and anxiety. It's no surprise that the least Christian generation in American history is also the loneliest, most psychologically morbid, and comparing this is part of why our church has life groups, volunteering, next gen, all these different things. I think there's a lot of you who come here and you do the equivalent of a church scroll, right? You show up, first time you held a phone, the first time you got an instant, the first time you got on TikTok, it's like, this is fun, I love this. Come to church, this is great, that short little pastor was so cute and fast speaking, he's just the best. Love him, right? Six weeks in, it's all right. Six months in, why am I here? Get involved. When you're just comparing here, it's not gonna be satisfying. God didn't create church to be a place that we come and watch. It's a place that we come and commune together. That's the core of this. Volunteering isn't just to make our church work, it's because we want you to be connected. Elijah looks at his newsfeed, he sees Jezebel Snap that she posted. I'm gonna kill that Elijah. He starts reading all the comments underneath. He goes deep, deep into it. He's looking at everybody's profile. It said something negative. He's going deep and he scrolls and scrolls and scrolls until he wants to die. Have you ever scrolled until you want to die? I have in my life, doesn't lead anywhere good. Stop comparing and start communing. I think so many of us, we get in this situation where we're just comparing and comparing and comparing to we enter this place where we just don't want to be alive anymore because we don't measure up anywhere. Listen, God didn't create you to compare. You will always fall short of his standard. He created you to be in community, in communion with him. Join a life group, volunteer, build a godly community with friends who actually love God as well in your life. Second trap of depression is complacency. Complacency means not doing anything. Elijah feels lonely because he just stops. This is the big thing. All his life, he has been working to defeat Jezebel and Ahab. And he reaches the pinnacle of what he's always wanted. And he gets there, and he realizes it didn't bring him what he thought it would. And then he just stops. He sits under a solitary broom tree. And in that time, you know what? If you didn't do anything, you'd die because everybody was subsisting. I used to wait tables at Acapulco, Mexican Family Restaurant, Bar and Grill, with locations in Maplewood, Stillwater, Coon Rapids, and coming soon to Anoka. And... um. I was a terrible server, like really bad. I know some of you would be like, oh, I would love to have Pastor John Wade tables. I bet he's funny. Nope, wrong. I was distracted. That's what I was. If you wanted food, probably wouldn't come. If you wanted drinks, my tables were deserts, okay? It was just dry there. You didn't get nothing. I just forget, especially if I had one or two tables, I was the worst, okay? But when I had a section of seven tables it was full, I was on point. I was getting there. I remember I was working as hard as I can because I was engaged. I wasn't complacent. This is actually not true just for me, but across the whole restaurant industry and other industries as well. Busy people are happier people and better workers. I think about the reason Elijah got depressed. It's because he slowed down. He stopped living for God's purpose in his life. And he just ran away from Jezebel and stopped. I think this is a lot of us today. We live at this really wealthy time in human history for the first time. We have these huge amounts of leisure time. And a lot of us, we don't know what to do, especially this time of year. Because what do you do in Indiana? We don't have snow. It hasn't thought out yet. I'm just waiting for the lake to open up, so I go fishing again, right? I mean, come on. In Christ, we need to move from complacency into a God-given commission. The greatest joy and satisfaction that I can find comes from serving Jesus and his purposes, even when I don't feel like it. I know that working for God's kingdom will bring way more satisfaction than sitting at home watching Architectural Digest YouTube channel about homes that I'll never live in. I want you to see what the life-giving Great Commission can bring. This is a level of satisfaction that I found in my life that is unrivaled and unparalleled. Here's a God story from someone who was baptized today. It says, my God story is very dark, very deep, but very real. This past year has been one of the darkest in my life. And by dark, I mean fiery pits of hell dark. My home was filled with pentagrams and Ouija boards. I worshiped not God but something dark and cruel. My heart was broken, blackened, and bruised. I felt defeated on every level there was. Everything changed one day while I was dropping off my niece at NextGen. I would have never gone to the church, but my niece begged me to go, so I obliged. I was sitting in the church parking lot when a woman came to my car to hand me a flyer. She looked at me without judgment, with kindness that I'd never experienced. She saw me and made me feel known. I just want to say thank you to the greeters, the volunteers, the people at next gen who do stuff like that. I want you to know you make a difference. I ended up meeting her a few days later. She listened to me, connected with me. It was the most beautiful moment of my life. And I felt Jesus there for the first time. I gave my life to him that day. And everything changed in a matter of minutes. I was free. I am saved. Life is completely new meaning now. First Church has taught me so much and has continued to affirm my belief in Jesus. I am running full speed ahead with the powerful gift of Jesus, and I'm loving every minute. I am blessed and forever changed because of the people at First Church that took the time to get to know me, the real me. They didn't judge my exterior in any way. They invited me with open arms, and I will never forget that. It changed my life. I feel peace. I feel strength. I am saved. How cool is that church? Who who wouldn't want to live a life that brings that about? I mean, listen, when you give here, when you serve here, when you tithe here, when you bring here, you are a part of 100 stories just like that one. That is satisfaction, moving from this complacency to this mission, this commission in our life. Generations before us didn't struggle with depression and anxiety like we do. And I think part of that is they were working 90 hours a week to subsist in rags to stay alive. There was no complacency. But also, I think there was a deep love for Jesus, a commission that permeated every part of their life, that brought meaning and joy. We are so blessed with our wealth. But with it comes the drawback of having to force ourselves out of complacency. Because whereas before, sitting under a broom tree meant you were going to die, today we can do nothing and not die and be okay. I'm so thankful that God gives us a plan for our life that the Bible calls this great commission. Jesus describes it in Matthew 28, 19. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's all about making his name and glory known. I just want to ask you, are you doing this in your life? If you're a Christian, are you doing this? Battle darkness and depression in your life by moving from complacency to God's great commission. Live God's purposes every day. I think so many of us have this spiritual darkness encroaching on our life. Because we focus on ourselves. We focus on this, and I need to be fed, and I need this, and I just need the word, and I need deeper discipleship, and I need. And we lose sight of the great purpose God has given us. Listen, I love God's Bible studies. I love expository preaching. I love a good old Beth Moore Bible. I love, you know, Battlefield of the Mind and all this, and going to this conference and Promise Keepers and all these great things. I love that. But are you living out the Great Commission in your life? Are people far from God in your life seeing the gospel in you, hearing the gospel from you? If all your prayers were answered, would anybody far from God have their life transformed? I just think so many of us, we hit this spiritual plateau and it's like, ah, I don't feel very good. I just feel this and everything's good. And listen, listen, listen. It's because we're living in complacency. Move to commission. Reach out and be a part of the harvest. Finally, and this is my most important point, like I said, it's the best point. I want you to tune in here. I think the third reason we struggle with this depression is we compromise with God's promises. This is going to make more sense in a minute. I want you to bear with me. But first off, I shared this before. My wife, Kristen, grew up pretty wealthy, right? They had a 30,000 gallon in-ground saltwater pool, seven bedroom house, 6,000 square feet in the main house. When you have to make a distinction that somebody has a main house and then there are other like structures on the I mean that's it. You know what I mean? Three laundry rooms, huge multi-car garage. They had a statue that looked ridiculous in their driveway with a fountain in there. I don't understand. Like now you're just bragging, father-in-law. You know what I mean? Every girl got, you know, an almost new car at 16, and I just keep telling people, and I will remind this church, that supermodel wife left all that for all of this right here. <laughs> right? She moved into my 800-square-foot former foreclosure with two roommates as newlyweds. Isn't that great when you have two single guys as your roommates as newlywed, whatever? That's great. We actually bought groceries from Mike's Discount Grocery. You had to sign a waiver to buy their food because it was not fit for human consumption. But nevertheless, I mean, no worries, right? Anyway, Kristen growing up, a lot of her family friends wanted to hang out because of their stuff. That's hurtful. You know what I mean? That's hurtful to Kristen. That's insulting to her family, having people just want your stuff. Super insulting. You know what? It's not fun for the friends either, because stuff is so much worse than friendship. I mean, would you rather have a nice thing or a deep, meaningful, amazing, rich friendship? And I know I'm biased, but to me, Kristen is actually the most wonderful person that I've ever met. Like, actually, like, the most captivating. She's special. Knowing her has been special. Talking with her has literally been, just conversing with her has been one of the defining privileges of my life. And some of her friends missed it. They missed that for her stuff. Silly. We'll come back to that in a minute. But um, now I want us to um, imagine heaven for a moment. I want you to think about heaven with me. Let's just think about what heaven's going to be like. For a lot of us, when I think of heaven, I think of seeing people that I love. I've got some people in my life who are mentally and physically handicapped. I imagine seeing them like whole-bodied and whole-minded. I imagine no more pain, no more tears, no more death, no more regret, no more tragedy. I imagine heaven like a five-star resort, you know what I mean? Like nice beach, getting to eat as much great food as I want without getting fat, Never being full, but also never being starving, but just getting, oh, man, so awesome. Food is like a major part of heaven for me. Anyway, um, what many of us just described is more accurately a description of hell. See, what is the biblical definition of hell? The, the, The major distinction of what hell is, it is the only dimension in which God is not present. I think most of us, when we think of heaven, the first things that we think of don't involve Jesus at all. We don't even imagine him being there. The biblical definition of heaven is God being there. By nature, that's what heaven is. It can't be heaven without Jesus And I think a lot of us are just like Christians' friends. We love God's stuff, but we don't really love God. We love His promises, but we don't care about His presence. Just like the material things in this life, loving God's stuff more than a relationship with God is going to be unfulfilling. And I've talked about His principles versus His promises, but today I want to emphasize the difference between a promise and God's presence. I mean, the whole reason this thing exists, this Christian movement is because Jesus came from heaven to earth so that we could know him and enter God's presence. That's what this movement is about, the presence of God in our life, the spirit of the living God making his home in us, in our spirit. Honestly, ask yourself this, and this is a big question. I want you to think about this, every single person in this room. Think about this. Think about this, okay? If God died and was gone forever and didn't come back from the grave, right, he just died, gone, out of the picture, but you could still go to your imaginary version of heaven, would you be heartbroken or would you generally be like, well, I mean, that's okay? You know, and I just, I want God's thing. I think there's a lot of us that are like, uh-oh, he's right. Right? I understand that. And this is why. And this is why God says, wide is the road and broad is a path that leads to destruction. And many will find it. And narrow is the road. And narrow is a gate that leads to eternal life, and only a few will find it. I remember as a kid hearing that verse, I was like, God, I mean, it's like 2.3 billion Christians on earth. I'm pretty sure it's a pretty broad road that leads to heaven. How can you say it's narrow? But suddenly I get it. I think there's a lot of us that think we follow Jesus, but we don't. I think there's a huge part of us out there who are unfulfilled, quote-unquote, Christians. We claim to love God, but many of us, we don't really love him. We love his promises. And that, my friends, is something the Bible would call idolatry. Worshiping a false God. The promises of God are not God. They're not what we worship. We worship God alone. Idolatry doesn't satisfy. And I think there's a lot of us as Christians who are fundamentally unsatisfied. Because we don't actually worship God. We worship his stuff. There are people here, you started following Jesus two years ago, 20 years ago. You were raised in a Christian home, whatever. And recently you hit this thing called the spiritual wall. Right? Your faith was growing for a long time. Things were really good for a long time. All of a sudden the faith just becomes... The same old, same old, right? Nothing is bad. It's just your faith is not good. I mean, you love God, but now it's just, you've read the Bible a few times, you know. You've been through the Bible in one year, a couple, ten times. It's like, okay, I've read it. I know it. I've done lots of things. And you're at this place of spiritual plateau. Maybe if you're honest, it's a place of consistent yearly decline, faith-wise. You know God is real. It's just the passion is gone. Well, the passion for God was never there. It's passion for His stuff. I think what happens we start to make these compromises. Well, I've been good my whole life, you know, and I mean, my kids are only in high school once, and we'll just compromise a little bit, and we'll just go to these tournaments, we'll just whatever, and we'll get back into it eventually, and we'll just get drunk with our friends because we're 50, and we've been good, and we've walked the high road our whole life, and if I just whatever, and it's just whatever, I'll just, and you know what's there is emptiness. It's emptiness. It's not a relationship with God. It's a relationship with His stuff, and it's unfulfilling. I relate to this because it's a struggle of mine. It's a proclivity of mine. Here's my issue. I get obsessed with the truth of God, right? The way his his, his principles make the world better. The way that following his plan for marriage and human sexuality and gender, his plan for forgiveness and loving others make your life better. I mean, statistically, they do, right? That's great. I love that God is true. I love that he's provable. But at the end of the day, being a Christian is not a so that we have better lives. It's a so that we can know and love God and enter his presence. Big question, big question. Do you desire the promise of God? Or the presence of God in your life more? I want you to think about it. I want you to think about this one for a minute. because I think there's plenty of us here today. Things are good, but spiritually we're in the darkness. I mean, if we're just honest, we're just plateaued, we're just stuck. We're spiritually depressed. Maybe we're in community, maybe we're living out the Great Commission, but do you really desire the presence of God? Do we love Him? And this is what Elijah got wrong. In the triumph of his life. He's, he's in the triumph of his life. Things were, were so good. The mission of God, serving God, it was there. But he's sitting under a solitary broom tree, praying that he might die. Because he was, he was working for the promises of God. But he forgot about the presence of God. It's interesting because, you know, he's praying under this broom tree and, and you'd think that, you know, what he wanted most was God making Jezebel disappear. You know what I mean? Like, that's what you think he needs most. But you know what God does? And this is kind of surprising. God, um, God doesn't do that. He doesn't make Jezebel disappear. He completely addresses the issue by showing Elijah his presence. Right? There's a, there's a windstorm. There's an earthquake. There's a firestorm. But God isn't in any of those things. God shows up in this gentle whisper in 1 Kings chapter 19. And Elijah is lifted out of this depression as he sees the presence of God. The deepest yearning of his heart, the deepest desire of his soul is is met. The thirst of his heart is, is, is quenched. And he, in this moment, is relieved of the hurt and burden because he finds God's presence. There's a lot of us here who are empty because we've been looking for the promises of God. But God's promise has always been His presence. There's this great character in the Bible. His name's King David. And uh, he is an amazing historical figure. I find it unique that he was God's favorite. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart, and he is the favorite person of the Old Testament. I, I look at that, I find it odd because as a leader, he's a mess up. He's a he's a I think a person who really did some bad things. I mean, he fell into sexual sin, he fell into leadership sin, and as a Christian leader, I mean, I look at that and I think that's abhorrent. It's like God, how can you hold up David as an example? But as I think about and see David's heart, I I understand why. I mean. Psalm twenty-seven, one. I want you to see what David writes. He says, "This is his own song that David wrote." The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. The stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David says, "Look, there's nothing else. I mean, look, God. It's everything to me. His presence doesn't matter what happens. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident in this. I love his confidence." David is not depressed. When things are bad, he is good. When things are good, he is good. David, throughout his life, consistently loves God. How, how, how? Why, 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 why? Check out this next part. Check out this next part. I think this is really telling. I think this is the key to the whole talk. I want you to zoom in here. Psalm 27, 4. It says, the one thing I ask of the Lord. If you had one thing, one wish, you know, to ask God, what would it be like? I want superpowers. I want a billion dollars. I want you to heal my illness. I want you to heal somebody I love of cancer. I want you to bring so-and-so back from the dead. Okay? You get one wish. David says, one wish the thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. He wants the presence of God. David's like, I just want to be in God's presence. If I live, if I die, I want God's presence. I want to be with Jesus. I don't care about his promises. I don't care about any of that. I don't care about eternal life. All I want is Jesus. As I wrote this message, my seasonal issues are back. I'm not saying it's not chemical or medical, but for me, I know a part of it is spiritual. Spiritual. I'm in community, I'm living out the Great Commission, but I'm convicted about this. I love God's promises. But sometimes it's easy, it's not really desirous presence. Sometimes I just idolize His facts. I worship His promises, but, but I want Him to be my light and salvation alone. I want to move my heart back to Him. And, and I was thinking, like, how do I instruct the church to do this? How do I make this practical? And it's hard. It's hard to say, like, the presence of God. Like, you know your heart. It's difficult. But I'll tell you what this means for me. For me, this means reengaging in worship through music. As an Enneagram type 8, I'm like, what's music? If this is for losers. That's what that is, right? But no, music, worshiping God, this is a part of loving God. Instead of evaluating the band or looking at the hay saying, why do they do that? Or why do they have those crazy moving lights and the disco ball and all this? Listen, I want to worship Jesus and give Him my heart. I want to be able to worship Jesus around a campfire with a youth pastor that has an out-of-tune six-string and sounds like he's killing cats. You know what I mean? Like, I want to be able to worship God in any context. The greatest set, the worst, it doesn't matter. I want to worship God with all my heart. I want to love him. I want to have a desire for him. This means repenting of a sinful heart. I vitalize God's stuff rather than worshiping God alone. This means asking the spirit of the living God to fall afresh on me in every area of my life. This means inviting God into each segment of my life. God, be present. Be present when nobody's around. Be present when I'm driving my car. God, be present when I'm arguing with my wife. I want you to reign and rule in this moment. As we close, I'd like to ask you guys to stand. I know some of you might relate to different parts of this message. Many of us are just scrolling through the spiritual life of comparison, not seeking community with God and his people. Change. Join. Get involved. Do something. Do something. Some of us might be living in complacency. Live for God's great commission. There is satisfaction in that. Live life on purpose. There's a joy that comes from that. But my big thought for today is a church, my big challenge is that I want us to seek his presence. I want the spirit of the living God to fall afresh on our church. I don't want us just to be defined by the mission of God. I want people to come here and not say, oh, those people are on mission. I want them to say, I felt the presence of God in that community. It's undeniable. I want us to live the Great Commission in our life, but not because it's the right thing to do, but because we love God. I want us to seek his presence with a love that is unyielding with a faith that is unmovable, with a steadfast dedication that is unshakable. I want a focus on God that is relentless, with a heart that is all in. God's plan wasn't just to give us a better version of our life. It was to give us a relationship with Him so we could enter His presence. Pray with me. God, we love You. We seek You. We serve You. God, give us a fresh wind and a fresh fire. We set our hope on You. In the name of Jesus, amen.